You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past and present, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. Welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Ayan Shirwa. This week, we're tackling the subject of racial capitalism. What is it? Why should we care? And how does it threaten our existence? Helping us understand this concept is academic Alana Linton. Alana recently gave an introductory lecture on the topic and on today's show, she finally puts an end to the ongoing debate of what came first, capitalism or racism? And later in the show, you'll hear a snippet of her lecture, a talk that you can listen to in full on her website, alanalenton.net. Welcome to Woman on the Line, Alana. Thanks for having me. Tell us about the work that you do and why you got into this line of study. Well, let me begin by acknowledging that I'm on Gadigal Wangal land today and paying my respect to elders past and present um, and just reminding myself and everybody listening that these always were and always will be Aboriginal lands. It's important to start there because my work and what we're going to be talking about today connect to the ongoing dispossession and exploitation of these lands that we're all living on. So I guess a little bit about myself. Um, I'm a Jewish European woman. I was born uh, on occupied Palestinian land, but I grew up in Ireland. Um, I moved around Europe a fair amount, uh, doing anti-racism activism and, you know, later getting into academia. And I moved here to Gadigal, Wangal land in 2012, And I've been working at Western Sydney University ever since, teaching and doing research on race, racism and anti-racism. Well, today I brought you on to talk about racial capitalism, which is a very Mm -hmm. complex subject. I did listen to the first part of your lecture. I (laughs) didn't get a chance to listen to the second part. So today I'm going to just ask you really basic questions that will allow us to be able to listen to your lecture Um, or at least provide some sort of background information to your lecture. So let's start from the beginning. I know it's a bit hard of an ask, but can you, in a nutshell, give us a very succinct description or definition, sorry, of what racial capitalism is? Yeah, sure. I mean, racial capitalism, to begin, is a concept that's gained in popularity over the last few years. And I think it's really important that people are paying more attention to this notion of racial capitalism. And I suppose the first and most simple thing that we can say about racial capitalism, or indeed about capitalism, is that there's no such thing as non-racial capitalism. All capitalism, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore has said, is racial capitalism. Okay, so that's the first thing. And I think that kind of makes it easier because We know what capitalism is, and now we need to think about it in relation to race, but not keep these two things separate. We need to see how these two things have grown up together. 
On the other hand, if you look at the work of Gargi Bhattacharya, who's written a really important book called Rethinking Racial Capitalism, which came out a few years ago, she says that although it's true that all capitalism is racial capitalism, it was not inevitable that that became a fact, right? But it is historically true if we look at how capitalism and racism emerge and and inhabit each other from the beginning. So she talks about how the framework of racial capitalism or thinking about capitalism as racial helps us to understand how the world made through racism shapes patterns of capitalist development. In other words, the the fact that capitalism became a world system that underpins how our economy, political and social life is organized relies on a racialized division of labor um, and so therefore a different value placed on differently racialized peoples from the beginning. Mm. And that's really important to understand when we then want to understand context of colonialism, when we want to understand um, slavery and indeed modern day borders and why certain people have rights of residency or citizenship and other people don't and the ongoing exploitative nature of work, of labor. Right. In your lecture, you sort of touch on this ongoing debate about which came first, racial racism sorry, or capitalism. Why are we still having these kind of um, conversations, um, especially in activist circles? Like why aren't mm. we able to get it sorted in our heads? <laughs> well, I think, you know, so, so both Cedric Robinson, who's one of the most important uh, voices or the most important theorists, let's say, of racial capitalism, uh, and another person who's been really formative to thinking about racial capitalism, although he didn't use that terminology, which is Stuart Hall, spoke about the significance of um, the kind of thing you're alluding to at the moment. So this kind of divide, particularly on the left, among activists and among theorists about whether or not these two things should be connected. For some people, for hardcore Marxists, let's put it that way, racism is a kind of an ideology that's used or wielded by the um, the bosses, if you like, so the, our employers and by the capitalist class in order to divide the working class in order to base better rule over them. Okay, So they basically see racism as an entire myth that's invented in order to make white workers believe that they should not be in solidarity with black and other negatively racialized workers and vice versa, so that the working class should be split. And of course, the aim of that from the, from the employer's perspective, and from the capitalist class's perspective, is in order to be able to better control labor. And so that's a kind of a very simplistic um, you know, notion that still drives, I would say, some of the more kind of simplistic analyses of the relationship between capitalism and racism. And then there are people sort of in the middle who say, well, you know, the connection of racism to capitalism is is an aberration, right? So it's not always like that in all cases. And this was the example for, you know, the early theorists of racial capitalism were actually South African Marxists who developed the idea that apartheid is not an exception to um, capitalism. In fact, it is capitalism functioning. So, and a system of rule that relies on a racialized division of labor in order to be more productive, in order to be more, um, to amass more wealth. 
But they didn't think that this was the case for all capitalism. They thought that South African apartheid was an exception to the rule. Then you have people like Cedric Robinson and Stuart Hall who look at it differently and say, well, actually, these two things grow up together. So as I said earlier, racism and capitalism are codependent, right? And historically, they grow up at the same time. And, you know, this division, let's say this tripartite division between these three different camps is still very much at the heart of how things play out when we're in activist circles. And and then there are also different approaches to how to deal with it. So for some people, it would be, well, what we need to do is diversify capitalism. We simply need more, I think the language that's often used is inclusion of negatively racialized people as um, owners of the means of production, to use the Marxist language, the people who basically run the economy. If we had more black businesses, for example, or indigenous businesses, then things would be better. And there are people who say, no, any form of capitalism being racial will always be exploitative. And ultimately, this will have a negative effect on those who are the most exploited and dispossessed in society. In other words, negatively racialized people. Mm -hmm. So there's no salvation through capitalism. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the kinds of issues that arise when we talk about these things. Is that where the, um, I can't remember who said this, but black faces in higher places. Oh, yes, Joy Jane. Yeah, can you speak on that some more? Well, Joy James is probably one of the most radical thinkers um, working today. She's um, an African-American scholar based in the United States, obviously. And she, um, in writing about racial capitalism, she wrote that we need, and this is the point made by many theorists of racial capitalism, we can't only look at this in discrete national contexts. So looking at Australia, for example, as separate to the United States, I mean, obviously, all of these national contexts have their own version of how this plays out, right? And here in so-called Australia, of course, the fact of the dispossession of, of indigenous land is primary to how then racial capitalism developed in this place, as it was in um, the United States, Canada, Palestine, etc., which are all settler colonies, right? Yeah. But we, so we need to do that work of looking at the specificity, but we also need to look at the global and Joy James would say the imperial dimensions of racial capitalism as a world-making project, right? So she said, looking at, Joy James was actually referring to Kamala Harris, uh, who was, as you know, elected as vice president of the United States, but also earlier to uh, speaking about Barack Obama, when he was elected president, she said, ultimately, these are leaders of an empire. And her quote is here, empires thrive on violence and racial capitalism, And then she goes on to say whether or not there are black faces in high places. In other words, it doesn't really matter whether or not you have a black president or a white president. Ultimately, the U.S. is an empire that's involved in the domination and exploitation of countries in the majority of the world. Yeah, because to me, it sounds like they're still carrying out the legacy of like imperialism and and colonization, but just with a black face, like it doesn't really make much of a difference. Um, what about this like push towards diversifying institutions? And one example that I'm thinking of that I saw on Twitter was um, the nomination of Ravenhall Correctional Center for a Transgender Inclusion Award. Oh, yeah. Like how do these things happen and why can't we like, especially us who live in um, racialized bodies or, or, or bodies mm. that sit on the margin, why can't we see things for what they are like? How do we get duped into this? Mm. I do think many people do see things for what they are. I, I, so I, mm. I, I want to be a little less 
I mean, I guess I want to be positive about the fact that, and particularly, I think recently, as a result of the not not only the pandemic, but also after the murder of George Floyd and this explosion of kind of global protest for um, you know for Black liberation, really then I think there's more and more realization among particularly younger people led by people of color and black people in particular and indigenous people obviously here um, that does see through this stuff. The promise of inclusion is very tempting, okay? And we live in an individualist, an individualistic neoliberal political and economic context which values the individual above all. And so we fall, I think, for notions such as excellence, for example, um, the idea that there are these excellent individuals who will lead us into a better future. And, and it is really attractive. And there are many kind of very inspiring people, I think, that, you know, we rally behind because they do good work without realizing, of course, that there's no such thing as an individual being successful in and of themselves without the collective, right? Mm. So in that kind of neoliberal soup in which we all swim, if you know what I mean, then it's very easy um, for the kind of initiatives that you're talking about to kind of start to make sense for certain people, particularly um, for the capitalist class. And what, of course, has happened in the post-Black Lives Matter moment in particular is the kind of the elite capturing of the discourse of social movements. And this isn't new. And if we look at the history of anti-racism or of the feminist struggle or of gay liberation, you've always had a moment at which the elite will will co-opt the language and the practices of activists and kind of try to bring it into the fold. And that's where you, and then of course this is supported by institutional, um, uh, you know, frameworks, if you like, that that need to tick boxes of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and then it creates this kind of, um, dominant structure in which, well, if we just do this, if we recognize, for example, that this particular prison has been good at, what was it exactly, employing trans people or mm. something like that, then that will be, um, that, that will t- tick our box in terms of our, di- our diversity, equity and inclusion, um, you know, requirements. Now, the problem with that is I think we lack, and this is something that's really, really, it's, it's a problem that isn't new. Again, it's something that's, that's been noticed and been repeated over the decades is that we lack, we lack historical knowledge about the history of our struggles. Um, speaking here from the perspective of anti-racist struggles, which is what I know best. And there's this constant kind of repetition of, of the same kinds of vicious cycles. So if we look historically at where notions such as multiculturalism come from and later uh, diversity, these are efforts by the state in collusion, of course, with business to um, dilute and if not cancel out completely um, black liberation movements right, or indigenous liberation movements. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Woman on the Line. As promised, here is a snippet of Alana's lecture on racial capitalism. This talk was given at the Institute for Culture and Society. In this section, Alana explains the South African roots of racial capitalism and discusses the contributions of thinker and activist Cedric Robinson. So in this section, I'm going to discuss the South African roots of the idea of racial capitalism. 
So the concept of racial capitalism originates with the book Foreign Investment and the Reproduction of Racial Capitalism in South Africa, written by white South African Marxist uh, scholars, Martin Legasik and David Hempson. And it was published uh, by the London-based anti-apartheid movement in 1976. Uh, Legasik and Hempson use the concept of racial capitalism to critique South African liberals who argued that apartheid was a dysfunctional aberration of capitalism that could be abolished through the improvement and better organization of South African capitalism, a position that uh, Peter Hudson remarks was shared by many white South African capitalists, by Henry Kissinger and the US State Department, and by the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Now, the context for the theorization of racial capitalism in South Africa was the growing international boycott movement that was targeting South African exports. According to Arun Kundani, those opposed to the boycott argued that only through increased industrialization and economic growth in South Africa would so-called racial prejudice melt away. This belief is grounded in a view of racism based on ex economic exploitation alone, a view which those who foreground racial capitalism oppose. Indeed, Legasik and Hemsen argued that capitalist growth strengthened racism rather than weakening it. Now, other South African Marxist scholars used racial capitalism uh, were Harold Walp, for example. Walp had um, been imprisoned for his activism against apartheid in 1963, but managed to escape spending 30 years in exile in the UK. Walp argued that black workers in South Africa could be paid at below social reproduction costs because the costs of social reproduction were being met in the parallel subsistence economy. Apartheid was kept in place to prevent the formation of a stable urban proletariat and ensure continued sub-reproduction labor costs, as those who were unable to work could be deported to the Bantu stands and workers could not, therefore, they were not able to create stable families in the cities. Another prominent proponent of racial capitalism was Neville Alexander, an activist and academic from the Eastern Cape, who was involved in the Azanian People's Organization and other anti-apartheid organizations. For Alexander, a non-racial capitalism was impossible in South Africa. According to Peter Hudson, Alexander was against those who argued for the development of non-racialism or multiracialism in South Africa without first criticizing the underlying notion of immutable races and without at the same time understanding the political economic relations that shaped them. In his review essay on racial capitalism, Arun Kundnani states that these South African theorists of racial capitalism blew apart the common Marxist idea that the advent of capitalism supersedes the phase of so-called primitive accumulation. In other words, the idea that the capitalist mode of production spread from its European origins to overtake the entire globe. Rather, in South Africa, an urban industrialist white economy coexisted with a black rural, rural sorry, non-capitalist economy. So the African subsistence economy was not outside of capitalism and destined to be dissolved by it in a process of dispossession and expulsion, as Kundani puts it, rather the two economic structures were combined into a single structure. 
These theorists also shattered the Marxist idea that capitalism would lead to ancient and venerable prejudices being swept away, as Marx and Engels claimed in the Communist Manifesto, because as Legacic and Henson claimed, in South Africa, racism actually increased the more advanced the capitalist economy became. Furthermore, the apartheid system was not actually a hangover from the 19th century, as many people assumed. It was a new capitalist state created in the 1940s. Racism in South Africa was not about manipulating the working class. It was, in fact, the basis for the economy. So in this section of the lecture, galloping through uh, all of this stuff, I introduced the theorization of racial capitalism proposed by Cedric Robinson in Black Marxism. Before doing so, let me say a few words about Robinson himself. So Cedric Robinson was born on November the 5th, 1940, and grew up in a Black working class neighborhood in West Oakland in California. He was active in radical student politics during his time at the University of Berkeley in the 1960s, and he got his PhD in 1974. In 1978, he joined the faculty of the University of California, Santa Barbara, and became director of Black Studies Research Center. Now, interestingly, as some of you may know, Robinson researched and wrote Black Marxism while living in Cambridge in the UK. He worked for the Institute of Race Relations, and activist intellectuals such as Ambalvanar Sivanandan, CLR James, who were all central in developing anti-racist strategy and theory in Britain. At a recent event that was organized by the Institute on the publication of Josh Meyer's intellectual biography of Cedric Robinson, Colin Prescott noted that Robinson's political development was enhanced by his many interactions with UK scholars and activists. So Black Marxism was published in the UK by Pluto Press in 1983, but it wasn't actually taught on US campuses, despite the fact that as Robin Kelly notes in his preface to the new edition, in it, Robinson, quote, rewrites the history of the rise of the West from ancient times to the mid 20th century. So key contributing factors to the lack of attention that was paid to the book were as follows. Firstly, well, it had a UK publisher, not a US, um, maybe university press. Secondly, the separation of race-based from class-based analyses by those on both sides of the debate played a role. Robinson insisted that it was actually impossible to separate the two. And this key theme, I think, is currently being addressed in part due to the revival and in interest in his book uh, and racial capitalism more generally after his death. Thirdly, black Marxism was also ignored by Eurocentric Marxist scholars and activists because of what Kelly calls the book's withering critique of Western Marxism. However, many have wrongly, I think, and others agree, assessed that, um, you know, that Robinson is uh, opposed to Marxism. Rather, we could argue that as Franz Fanon said, Robinson suggests a stretched reading of Marxism. Fourthly, uh, the central concern of black Marxism is really a centering of black thought, what Robinson calls the black radical tradition, which he locates in the struggle of African descendant people against racism and in particular slavery. Black Marxism requires us to view the history of modernity from the standpoint of those who lost everything 
as a result of colonial domination and imperialism. As such, it is also a critique of Eurocentrism. As Robertson stated in his 1980 book, The Terms of Order, the history and development of Western institutions, Western social thought is not merely ethnocentric, but epistemocentric as well. In this, Robinson's work is congruent with much critical indigenous scholarship that advances an epistemology that questions the universality of Western universalism. If you enjoyed that snippet, head over to Alana's website to hear more. The entire talk is available at alanalenton.net. Woman on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show. So send us an email to womanontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 Woman on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash Woman on the Line. The theme music for Woman on the Line is by Ripley Kavira. We leave you today with a song, Black Matriarchy by Barker. I'm Ian Shirwa and we hope to see you again next week. From a dream time, I go back. They committed genocide through my tracks. They raped our mothers less than my black. They bother violence when they attacked. I ain't here to start trouble, I'm just here to state facts. You can't paint me how you wanna paint cracks. And I'm tied to my mob, got my mob on my back. <sighs> Waratahs are covered in blood. Whitewashing our history to cover it up. Proof is all in the pudding, cause this nation couldn't give a fuck about us. We survive unseated, undivided. Our people stay fighting cause the flame is ignited. We stay righteous, we cannot be silenced. Cause silence is violence, the reason we're divided. And they choose not to digest the truth. Instead, they just go ahead and delude our youth. Only like the system cause it just suits you. Give a fuck about the law, yeah, I'd rather grassroots. Black to the bone, black to the busy. Mob on my back, yeah, they all rock with me. Barker in my blood, that river flow through me. I'm matriarchal bloodline 120. This for the black matriarchs This for my sisters who lived in the dark This for my sisters who carry our past on their shoulders This is for black matriarchs This is for all of our women This is for all of our children Couldn't care less about the monarch I'ma set fire to the kingdom I'm coming for them More hail to black matriarchs I'm the pain and the proof The history that lays out the truth And they couldn't walk a mile in our shoes Tell us to go bush when they all introduce Fuck it, we've been here for too long Matriarchy blood, yeah, been built strong Songlines deep, yeah, got me singing songs Cause I can't forget where I came from Barkinji country, Mungo man Pass it to my kids, tell them this your land I came from the dirt, go back in red sand There's a river, uncle, I'm proud of who I am Creator, created me tough and I'm calling out all your bluffs Saying the past is all in the past Well that dark past still lives in my mum I stay radical, I know the truth Couldn't kill my ancestors, I'm the proof I know I still got some screws loose But my third eye's open and I'm looking right through Looking at you, nuncle right here Gonna do what it do So my little black seeds ain't gonna prove shit to you Not just sent me, gone but what do 3% me, hold it down for the few This for the 
Fist for the black matriarchs Fist for my sisters who lived in the dark Fist for my sisters who carry our past on their shoulders This is for black matriarchs This is for all of our women This is for all of our children Couldn't care less about the monarch I'ma set fire to the kingdom I'm coming for them More hell to black matriarchs You know, I have a culture I am a cultured person Don't try and suppress me And don't call me a problem You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.